whole image of entrepreneurship was also changing because, you know, there was a time when it wasn't considered a compliment to call somebody an entrepreneur. In fact, it was sort of a put down. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, Bo Burlingham is an editor-at-large of Inc. Magazine and the author of five books, including Finish Big, How Great Entrepreneurs Exit Their Companies on Top, which has been praised by thought leaders like Seth Godin, Simon Sinek, and Jim Collins. And today, we discuss Bo's fascinating journey and how the very image of entrepreneurship has fundamentally changed over the past few decades. Yes, I did say decades because Bo has been at this a while. And this change has been a shift that is highlighted in Bo's previous book, Small Giants, which features the stories of small companies that value greatness over growth. Companies that have the opportunity to get bigger a lot faster, but chose not to because they value other goals and consider other goals more important than actual growth. Now, in the book, which you can read an excerpt of and buy on the show notes page, Bo identifies six characteristics of small giants, such as they have a relationship with the community in which they live and operate in. They have a close personal relationship with their customers. The only relationship they value more than the community that they operate in and more than the the relationship with their customers is their relationship with their employees. The leader's who operate the company know exactly who they are, what they want out of the business, and why they want that out of the business. And these leaders have a passion for what the company does, which is why they're choosing greatness over growth. And of course, they have an exceptional awareness of how they make money and the different streams and variety of income models and business models that they can use to build their mission. There's no doubt that the face of entrepreneurship is still changing, and with that change being led by these small giants and the next generation of entrepreneurs using their platform to have a game-changing impact, we can continue to be both brave and passionate enough to make an impact. Bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, don't be a podcast junkie, brace for impact. Bo Burlingham, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Super excited to have you and talk a lot about the the journey that you've had as an editor at large for Inc. Magazine and your prolific work in in the business world. And before we jump into all that, I love to start out by learning about my guests' origin story, what has made them who they are, and and help them become uh, who they are today. And I, I, I start out with uh, some questions that I've learned from an author and speaker who you probably have heard of named Patrick Lencioni. Um, 
he he wrote a book. He's mostly known for his business books, Five Dysfunctions, and uh, his most recent one, The Ideal Team Player. But actually, my first encounter with his work was a book called The Three Big Questions for the Frantic Family. <laughs> and because uh, I have a big family myself, I have four kids. And, and um, one of the questions that he asks in that interview is, what made your family unique? What made my family unique? Yeah, when you were, so growing up, what stands out to you? What made your family unique? That's a tough one. Uh, there were a number of different things. Number one, when I was 11 years old, my father had a, had a stroke and was basically incapacitated for the wow. rest of his life. And I also had a uh, sister who had Down syndrome, and that obviously had a very big impact on our life as well. She was a wonderful person, unfortunately. She died when she turned 50. And, and then my mother was a big influence. She was very active in the Democratic Party. In fact, she ran for Congress twice and lost. Uh, she probably ran the most economical campaign ever. She refused to raise money. She was sort of getting by with what little she had and other contributions, I suppose, subcontributions. But she's the only congressional candidate I think I've ever heard of who had black and white bumper stickers. <laughs> <laughs> that was sort of my early childhood. And then, you know, beyond that, there's a whole story that you probably don't want to get into because it doesn't have much to do with business. But, you know, I grew up in the 1960s, which was a tumultuous time in our history, and I was very much involved in it. Afterwards, I I, I began to write. There were some newspapers in, in the Boston. I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and there were some newspapers there, sort of uh, alternative newspapers. And I began by writing for them. And then I was offered a job to be the editor of a magazine called Ramparts, which was well known back in the day. And I took that job in 19, I guess it was 72 or something like that. And then subsequently, I, I began, I, we moved back, my wife and I moved back to Boston and we, uh, she wanted to go to nursing school. And so uh, I was freelancing at that point. And I began to write for various other publications, including uh, uh, Harper's Magazine and Esquire. But, you know, doing freelance writing is, is sort of a feast or famine, mainly famine. And <laughs> I got to a certain point where basically my wife and I had two children and I had to get a real job. I uh, was approached by a headhunter who said that Fidelity Investments in Boston, where I lived, was looking for a writer. And I said, well, I'm sure they don't want me. I don't know the difference between a stock and a bond. She said, no, no, no. They can teach you all that. They just want somebody who can write. So I agreed to go in for an interview, and all behold, they hired me. And that was really my first introduction to business, mm. was Fidelity in 1982. And that was an eye-opening experience for me, because as a child of the 60s, I had a lot of crazy ideas about business. I began to realize that most of them were wrong. 
when I started to work at Fidelity. I was only there for a year. And then I was uh, approached by Inc. Magazine, which was a, really a startup in Boston. And they were looking for writers who knew something about business, but had a sort of a background in general interest magazine writing, which I did. They offered me a job. I decided to take it. And I guess I, I felt during my time at Fidelity, as much as I was learning at Fidelity, as much as I enjoyed Fidelity, that I really belonged someplace else. Mm. And so I decided to go to Inc. And that was my introduction to entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And it was an extremely exciting time. We were at that point writing about entrepreneurs at a time when, frankly, most other publications were totally ignoring them. I mean, you looked at Fortune or Business Week and or Forbes, for that matter, and they were all focused on generally on large public companies. And the big issues were the competition from the uh, Japanese mainly. And, and that's, that's what they were focusing on. But here we were at, uh, at Inc. And we were seeing this revolution unfold. And we knew that the real competition for these big companies was going to come not from the Japanese, but from entrepreneurs. And they weren't paying attention to them, frankly. Mm. The whole image of entrepreneurship was also changing. Because, you know, there was a time when it wasn't considered a compliment to call somebody an entrepreneur. In fact, it was sort of a put down. It was like, you know, can you get a real job? People would tell their parents that they were going to start a business and become an entrepreneur. And uh, parents would say, you're going to throw away your education. That image of entrepreneurship was beginning to change in the early 1980s. Uh, I like to think that Inc. Magazine it was part of that. Uh, I think Ronald Reagan was also part of that because he was a president who promoted entrepreneurship. But mainly it was changing because of the companies and their leaders themselves. And, you know, we, I was very lucky to be in a situation where I was able to get to know a lot of these companies and their leaders when they were pretty young. And I'm talking about, you know, Steve Jobs at Apple. Bill Gates at Microsoft, but also Yvonne Chouinard at Patagonia and Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield at Ben and Jerry's and uh, Tom Stenberg at Staples and, you know, a whole raft of entrepreneurs who were starting companies that are today, you know, household names. There, there was really something very, very profound that was going on. And I was just lucky to be in a in, in, a, in a place where I could really look at that very closely. And it was a tremendous experience. Basically, I was, I, I, I was at Inc. I was initially hired as a senior editor, but then became about six months later, I became the executive editor, which is sort of the number two position. The editor-in-chief was George Gendron. And we were together at the magazine. I was executive editor for about nine or 10 years. And then I decided that I really, my sort of my self-image was, was as a writer. I, I decided I, I, I needed to get back to writing. That was one of the factors. The other was that 
I wasn't sure I believed all the stories we were writing because I, I know how magazines work. You know, you get you get an, an assignment and you go out and find that story. And I, I wondered, well, are these are these companies really as great as we say they are? But then the other thing that came along was an opportunity, namely. I would say the most interesting company we've written about in the entire 1980s was a company called Springfield Remanufacturing, which was uh, located in Springfield, Missouri. I happened to have lunch one day at an Inc. 500 conference, and Jack Stack, the CEO of Springfield Remanufacturing, was sitting on one side of a publisher named Harriet Rubin, and I was on the other side. I began asking him about the response he'd gotten to an article uh, that we'd written about them. And I told him that it was my favorite article that we'd run while I'd been at Inc. And, and the uh, publisher turned to me and said, well, why don't you write the book? And I, I was executive editor, so I, it wasn't like I had a lot of free time. I said, well, I, I don't know. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> and I talked to George, and George actually encouraged me because he said, he said, you know, this is obviously something that is really of great interest to you. And I mean, I also felt, you know, as a journalist, as a business journalist, I didn't really understand the numbers of business. And I didn't think I could be a good business journalist unless I did. And one of the things that made SRC, as Springfield Remanufacturing was known, special was that it was a pioneer in something uh, that came to be known later as open book management. Uh, Basically, Jack Stack and his colleagues had invented a way of running a company which was much different than, I mean, most people who heard about it, most entrepreneurs who heard about it thought he was crazy, where he would actually uh, train all of his employees to understand what an income statement was, what a balance sheet was, what a cash flow statement was, and so that they knew exactly what was going on in the business, what their role was, and what they had to do in order to make the business successful. And that was a really a revolutionary idea back in the uh, mid-'80s. I was fascinated by it. So one thing led to another, and I wound up Uh, spending a lot of time in Springfield, Missouri, and at first writing one book with Jack called The Great Game of Business. And then subsequently, I wrote another another book with Jack called The Stake and the Outcome. You know, plus I was becoming educated. uh, It was like an advanced course in entrepreneurship, really, because here I was. I mean, Jack was younger than me, was my mentor basically. Mm-hmm. That's what he he was. In a, he was in a, a visionary leader, and really had done some just extraordinary things. And I was able to to learn about them and write about them. And and really, that was the beginning of my book writing career. But I, I would say, when I look back, mainly I spent the nineteen nineties being educated about business by mainly by Jack and also by another writer who was a friend of mine, an Inc. 500 CEO named Norm Brodsky. Norm had a different philosophy of business, different way of approaching business, but there were some similarities. 
Plus, he was really uh, excellent in terms of explaining the numbers. So I was learning from him. And I also actually had a, uh, I'd written an article about uh, an eat erotic of the body shop that appeared in, I guess it was in 1990. And a couple of years later, uh, the body shop approached me and asked me to be on their, the board of directors of their U.S. branch. And I, I basically said, well, why, why do you want me on that? I'm a journalist. What do I know? They said, no, no, no. We think, we think that you could actually help our CEO. And I said, well, I'm willing to go take a look at it. If I feel like I can help, then I'm, I'm willing to do it. So I went down and I, I met the CEO of the U.S. branch. And, you know, what I saw was a company that was growing incredibly fast, probably too fast. And the leaders of that company were being, were totally overwhelmed with what they were dealing with. And, you know, by then I'd, I'd seen a lot of Inc. 500 companies. So I knew what fast, I knew something about fast growing launch. Uh, companies and the what the role of the entrepreneur is in those companies, and so I I thought yeah well I can probably help a little bit here so I agreed to uh, uh, go on the board and I was on the board of the U.S. branch for for five years which was also a very educational experience so I I was having all of these really I was learning just a tremendous amount I, I was also you know, doing some uh, writing for Inc. during that time. And I was also, uh, you know, doing these two books with Jack Stack. Well, that was really, uh, that's when I became editor at large. I was uh, executive editor and I was going to do this other thing. You know, they didn't know what to call me. So they said, well, why don't we call you an editor at large? I said, that sounds great because, you know, nobody really knows what that is and nobody will be know what I'm doing. So I, I did that. And then really in uh, what happened was that the uh, founder and owner of Inc., uh, Bernie Goldhirsch, who was uh, uh, another mentor of mine, he unfortunately had developed a brain tumor in 2000. And he realized that he trying to uh, deal with the development of the magazine and and fight this brain tumor was too much. So he put the company up for sale. In the end, it was bought by a European magazine giant called Gunnar and Yar, which was owned mainly by Bertelsmann. And that really, that changed the company in a lot of ways, among other things. Uh, they, they hired somebody who decided to move the, the magazine from Boston to New York they also had a new editor uh, instead of George, a, an editor, a very good editor named John Coden, uh, who'd been at Worth magazine before. Mm-hmm. He was anxious to have me continue writing for the magazine. So that's what I was doing. In fact, I was doing more of it uh, than before. And one of the articles that I wrote for Inc. was about a very interesting company up in Ann Arbor, Michigan called Zingerman's. Uh, Zingerman's, now known, it was started out as Zingerman's Deli, became Zingerman's Community of Businesses. And, and I just, I went and saw them and I, I thought it was 
really one of the most fascinating companies I'd ever seen. I wound up writing an article about them, which was called The Coolest Small Company in America as a cover story for Inc. That really led to basically a publisher in New York read that and called me up and said that he loved the story. And uh, he wondered if there wasn't a book there. At first, I didn't really understand what he was talking about. But then I realized that he was talking about companies that had the opportunity to get a lot bigger, a lot faster, but had chosen not to because they had other goals they considered more important. And that became small giants. Mm -hmm. He basically asked me, I wonder, he basically said, I wonder if there are other companies out there Mm -hmm. that have been in that situation and made similar choices. I, I thought, gee, that's a great question. Yeah. I didn't know what the answer was. You know, you've you've accomplished, you've just outlined like a, a list of incredible accomplishments thus far. And we're going to talk more about them. And I, I want to go back to your origin story though, too, as because as you're think as you're listing your accomplishments and what you've created and the experiences that you've had, I, I can't help but wonder what the nexus is between being eleven years old and having your father have a stroke and being kind of thrust into this world where you have to show up and stand up and become an adult way faster than, you know, the average 11 year old and how your curiosity and um, really the demand to learn quickly helped you along your path to where you've became the editor at large. Well, mainly I I would say the, the main effect of my father's stroke was that, number one, I became the, as my mother would remind me, I became the oldest, at 11 years old, I became the oldest able-bodied male in the family. And there was a lot of responsibility that came along with that, which I frankly scared me completely. I remember that my my father was in a rehabilitation center in uh, Rockland County where where we lived, and uh, he'd come home for weekends, and then my mother would drive him back. And I remember watching her leave to drive drive my father back to the rehab rehabilitation center, and I would be there with my younger brother and sister. And you know, it was a little scary to think about, well, gee, what happens now? What if they get into a car crash, and and it's and it's just me? So mm-hmm. I. I that was something that, you know, made a very big impact on me. And, uh, you know, obviously nothing, ter- nothing more happened after that. But uh, I would say that was, that was a big factor with sort of understanding at an early age what responsibility was. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that definitely carried over to my adult life. If you had to reflect back on on that, what did it teach you that you were capable of? That's a good question. I guess it gave me a certain sense of confidence later on that even though I got married at a very young age, I was 25, my wife wasn't even 21 yet, and we began having children. And there was a lot, obviously, there a lot of responsibility that comes with uh, being a parent, particularly being a young parent. My father had been a writer, and he'd been a journalist. 
I had never had the uh, particular desire to become a journalist, but when I had to earn a living, you know, and, and I was offered a job as a journalist, I felt, okay, well, I'll do that. I'll, I'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was never trained as a journalist. It was just something that I was going to figure out as I went along. But can I stop you there? I think that that's an important point because I think that one of the things that prevents people from taking action is this need to have things figured out. Right. I think you're right. Well, one thing I learned is that through my life is that a lot of times you don't get the chance. You, you figure it out once you get into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I guess that may have, again, been related back to my childhood where, you know, I was sort of thrown into this situation that I had to deal with. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was basically able to get through it. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. And I wonder if that confidence and that ability to press forward without having things completely figured out is what ultimately attracted you to this fledgling uh, magazine in this new era, working and interviewing and being surrounded by all of these people who were creating things on the fly, and they themselves didn't have things figured out. They just had an idea and figured that they could do it better. Well, I was certainly attracted to them. I mean, once I got to Inc., I began to really understand and love entrepreneurship. And I was certainly found these, you know, these were very creative people. I mean, Bernie Goldhirsch, the founder of Inc., taught me an awful lot about it because, you know, basically he'd been an entrepreneur. Well, he, he, he'd sort of started a magazine. He'd gotten out of college. He'd gone to MIT. And when he got out, he uh, decided he actually wanted to be a sailor, much to his parents' chagrin. Yeah. And, and he went down the Caribbean, and he loved sailing. And he, begins, he decided he'd start a newsletter that was just for sailors. And the newsletter became very popular and grew into a magazine. In fact, it was the first full-color, glossy magazine for sailors called sale magazine and suddenly bernie had found himself in business he never really planned to get into business there were all kinds of questions he had he looked around at all the business magazines and they didn't have anything to tell him about the kind of issues that he was dealing with and so he figured well gee i'm probably not the only one i think i'll start another magazine for for people like me for entrepreneurs and he said, uh, you know, and he came up with the name Inc. And, you know, that's how Inc. got started, really. And one of the things he always told me, 
he'd spent some time in college. He'd taken a semester off to work for Dr. Edwin Lamb, the uh, inventor of the Polaroid camera, the founder of the Polaroid Corporation. And that had a big effect on him. And he'd sort of come away from that experience with this tremendous respect for entrepreneurs and, and for entrepreneurs as creative people. And he used to tell us that when we wrote about entrepreneurs, we must think of them, you know, not just as sort of the numbers side. And the, we have to think of them as artists using both sides of their brain. Mm. Uh, we were really writing for people who were artists whose means of expression happened to be business. That was something that I really saw and I really identified with you know, in, in the people who we were writing about. And that was very, very interesting to me and sort of really sort of captured my imagination. You know, what you mentioned earlier that when you were, before you started at Fidelity and then, and then you know, shortly thereafter went on to Inc., you had one set of ideas about what business meant. And, and I'd love to learn about what changed in your thought process and, and what you began to come to know as the truth as opposed to an idea that you had previously held? Well, that is actually a very long story. <laughs> Basically, everything changed. I had been, you know, I, I suppose the best way to put it is I've been extremely anti-business, definitely anti-capitalism. Uh, I was very radical during the Vietnam era and afterwards. And it was, and, and, and I, I basically thought I had no interest in business. And I, I basically thought business was sort of the root of all evil. So when I went to Fidelity and I, I got in there and I began to meet these people who were running this big financial services corporation, you have to understand that when I went to Fidelity, it was going through a very interesting period itself because it had started out, you know, as sort of a boutique investment firm. And then when Ned Johnson took over, things started to happen. And, you know, the whole money market thing, you know, money markets, basically no one was aware of money markets. And then when interest rates went through the roof, suddenly it looked like money markets was, in fact, the place to put your money. And there were lots and lots of money going into money markets. And uh, Fidelity had one of the leading money market funds. And the company was growing like crazy. And it went from being really this boutique firm to being one of the major financial services firms in the, in the country. And I was sort of there during that period. I mean, you know, you probably don't remember, but the uh, you're, I'm sure, too young to remember, but the, the stock market uh, bottomed out in uh, 1982 and in the middle of that year and then started to, you know, go up and up and up, really up, up until, I mean, it had a little few blips here and there. But it was really, you know, just growing, growing, growing. Uh, the, the Dow was uh, getting larger and larger and larger all the way up to the, uh, the dot-com bust, 
which wasn't until what 2002 or something. So there was it was really the beginning of a long period of growth for the American economy, and it was a period when uh, entrepreneurs, you know, really led the way. You know, that, that was still pretty long time before the internet came around. Mm-hmm. There was no internet in the 1980s, or at least none that I was aware of. And uh, what really wasn't until the mid-90s that, you know, the World Wide Web uh, came along and we became aware that there was this whole other thing that was happening. You know, it was, it was exciting. It was an exciting time to be there. So you jump ship from Fidelity to Inc. And now you're surrounded by all of these, you know, now brand name companies like Apple and Patagonia. What was the most surprising thing that you learned when you, you know, entering at the ground level of this entrepreneurial rocket ship? Most surprising thing was that there were, I suppose it's partly given where I was coming from. The most surprising thing to me was that there were these fascinating companies that were doing really interesting things and were creating really great workplaces for people and were having these wonderful effects on their communities and they were being run by Republicans. <laughs> I mean, to me, that was a shock. It was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's going on here? You know, this is sort of the opposite of what I felt. In fact, back then, the liberals that I knew, most of my friends were liberals who were involved in business were nowhere near as progressive in terms of the way they ran their companies as a lot of Republicans who were essentially libertarians. And that came as a huge surprise to me. <laughs> took some thinking to get my hands around or get my head around. It really got me thinking about some very basic economic questions, mm-hmm. such as where does wealth come from? Mm-hmm. What is it that we depend on? You know, where do jobs come from? How are jobs created? What does it take to create a job? You know, I, I, I sort of laugh when you have uh, politicians and presidents in particular talking about the jobs they created, knowing perfectly well they didn't even create a single job. Mm-hmm. Jobs were created all, you know, really pretty much by entrepreneurs. I mean, during the 1980s, at the beginning, you know, in the 70s and so forth, economists looking forward expected, you know, in the next 10 years, there was going to be a real shortage of jobs and uh, opportunities. And if they had known at that point that, in fact, the Fortune 500 was going to lose millions of jobs and they realized the role that women were going to be playing coming into the workforce it would have been even more pessimistic but in fact 1980s and 90s frankly turned out to be a boom time mm-hmm. and why was it a boom time it was a boom time because of entrepreneurs mm-hmm. the entrepreneurs were creating the jobs that were building the economy Mm-hmm. And the change of the economy. And that's why it's a boom time right now. We, we haven't had, we, we got away from policies. I mean, we, we sort of have got them back right now. But, but for a long time, we had uh, policies that were not particularly favorable. 
you know, I'm, and when when you talk and you know, say since two thousand, that we're not particularly favorable to the formation of, for entrepreneurs, and the result was that the rate of business formation went down significantly, and uh, it, it may be coming back. I hope it's coming back mm-hmm. because uh, that that would, that's a very could be a very big and positive impact in the economy. But you know that's all sort of playing out right as we speak. You know you've you've been in the game a long time, and I can't help but notice myself that there's kind of an insidious undertone in the entrepreneurial world right now in terms of growth at all costs and get to seven, eight, nine or more figures as quickly as possible and then make an exit. And and I can't help but feel that we're in a little bit of a danger zone right now as it relates to what, what it means to be an entrepreneur and the value of an entrepreneur in the overall economy and the impact that an entrepreneur can have, not just in the economy, but in their local community. And I'd love to get your, based on your experience, your take on on that kind of an idea. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more about that, but although I wouldn't apply it to everybody. I mean, basically, I think that there are a couple of things that have happened. One is Silicon Valley used to be a place where... Uh, innovation really happened. Still, I mean, obviously it still happens in Silicon Valley. And the venture capital was supplying the capital required to fund these companies. That sort of switched around a little bit. Now Silicon Valley is a place where that venture capital falls the tune. And you have people, young people coming out to start companies. And often they start thinking, wondering about where they're going to, you know, how they're going to get a venture capital before they've even figured out what kind of a company they want to build. Mm-hmm. That's happened out here. I mean, I live in Oakland, so I'm reasonably close to it. And that, that, that certainly happened out here, although there's a bit of a backlash against that. That's happening with people who, frankly, are having the same reaction that wait a minute, what's going on here? Is this all about building a company and then cashing in for as much money as you want? Or is the business really supposed to be contributing something to make the world better? You know, so, so there's, that has been, you know, one factor that has, uh, it's beginning to be talked about. I mean, I will say this is that I'm encouraged by uh, one of the things now, now, my book, Small Giants, basically was picked up by Forbes, and Forbes decided that they wanted to do an annual list of small giants, and they asked me to uh, come over to work with them, to come over from Inc. So two or three years ago, I agreed to do that. And now, you know, we get lots of nominations of companies that really exhibit the same qualities as the companies that I wrote about small giants. And I have to say, I'm blown away. The hardest thing we have right now is we only have 25 a year. And the hardest thing we have right now is to sort of whittle down this list mm-hmm. of 25 companies because there are so many great companies on it. And a lot of them, 
I'm, I'm, also, I'm, I'm very impressed with a lot of millennials, frankly, because I think millennials are particularly attuned to the idea that, wait a minute, there's more to life and there's more to business and there can be more to business than just, uh, you know, getting the big score. What's the, what do you, when you look at these lists and the companies that are being nominated, what's the common thread among them that ties them together? Well, they're all companies there are, you know, in small giants, uh, there were basically uh, six characteristics that I came up with to define what a small giant is. And one of them had to do with the relationship that they have to the communities in which they're located, which is that they, they not only give back to their communities, but in some ways, their personalities are shaped by the communities in which they live. Another one was they had this very sort of close relationship to their customers, uh, really almost personal. That, that was what struck mm-hmm. them. You know, they really sought to develop these personal connections uh, to their customers. Uh, and yet, oddly enough, it, the customers, in many cases, second after the employees, uh, you know, when you think about it, once a company gets to a certain size, you know, it's not the uh, CEO who's dealing with customers, it's people who work in the organization. And if those people don't feel like they're working for a company that doesn't really care about them, they're not going to deliver very good service to the customers. So these are all companies that really try to create um, what I call um, cultures of intimacy within the company. Mm-hmm. Herb Keller, who's the founder and leader of Southwest Airlines, was always asked, how oh, was Southwest able to do so well? It had a valuation that was greater than these other seven top airlines combined. And he said, well, it's, it's easy. It's our culture that allows us to do that. Mm-hmm. To do all kinds of things that other can't do. And when he has asked, well, what was the secret of your culture? He says, was caring for people in the totality of their lives, mm. not just as employees, but as human beings. Mm. You know, that's something that I find with all the small giants. So those are the criteria. And, and you know, then we look also look at their finances. And, you know, obviously, if you if your finances aren't in order, you're not going to have a company very long. So yeah. you can really do all these things. Well, one, one brand that I think of immediately when you're talking about this, I, I'm in Santa Cruz, not too far from where you are, and is, is CrossFit, which was founded here in Santa Cruz. And they had a, he had a clear vision, uh, Greg Glassman did, of what he wanted to create. And he started very small and he built a community around it. And he created these advocates that, you know, went out and then started their own affiliate gyms. And now it's a $4 billion brand and CrossFit is. Yeah. Well, obviously I, I don't know much about CrossFit, but you're right that there, that there are companies like that out there that are it's made- movement based. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand that. Yeah. yeah. Like same thing with Patagonia. I mean, like Patagonia has, which you've met, you mentioned earlier in the show, 
you know, Patagonia is, is another company that has created a movement around its brand. True. And, and you do sort of see this with a lot of these because people get very passionate about these brands because they represent something that people can really believe in. Mm-hmm. People can think, you know, this is really important. It's important for not all, you know, if you have, I mean, that was one of the characteristics actually of the small giants was that all of the companies that I looked at were founded by people who had a very clear idea of who they were, what they wanted, and why. They had to have that clear idea because they were often making decisions that other people were telling them were crazy. And if if they hadn't, in fact, known who they were, what they wanted, and why, they would never have stuck with with the decisions. Mm -hmm. These were also people who sort of loved whatever it is that their their company did. I mean, I know you look at Von Chouinard at Patagonia, and he, he loves what it is that Patagonia does. Not just Patagonia, but what Patagonia does. I'm sure that the founder of CrossFit uh, feels the same way about, you know, fitness mm-hmm. and the importance of delivering what CrossFit does to as many people as possible. And, you know, so that, that's another quality. He would be an interesting guy for you to interview. I think that you would really find Greg Glassman a fascinating and what he's created. And right now his big, huge, hairy, audacious goal is to take down the soda industry. <laughs> really? Yes. Yeah. He, you, sh- you, sh- you should interview him. You should... Yeah. He's he's been interviewed by Forbes and stuff in the past, but he he's somebody that you should try to connect with and and talk with because he he would be I think the two of you would really get along very well. Has he been on your show, Mike? He has not yet. <laughs> You're working. I'm working on it. He's you know he's he's, but I I guarantee you that you could you could get access to him. You, you would get through the gatekeepers a lot faster than I would. <laughs> But you know, you mentioned um, Yvonne. Is that how you say his name? The founder of Patagonia. Yeah, I, I'd be. It sounds like you ha- you have a good relationship with him, and you've known him for a, a long time. Yeah, and I'd be curious, like, what has how have you seen him evolve as a leader in terms of balancing the need to grow, but also maintaining their core values. I would say this, he obviously, if you look at the results in terms of Patagonia, obviously he has grown. Uh, I'm not familiar enough. I mean, there are certain companies that I know really well. Like if I, if I look at uh, SRC, the company that, uh, that I was talking about earlier with Jack Stack, you know, I've seen that company grow from basically, it was a spinoff from International Harvester. You know, it was... First year it did like 16 million and lost, you know, today it's like three quarters of a billion dollars. And I've watched the changes that have gone on in that company because that's something that Jack has been, you know, certainly dealing with, which is uh, how do you grow a company without losing what it is? You know, and frankly, all the small giants are growing. The Cliff Bar is one of the. Uh, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
It's one of the companies that I wrote about, Small Giants. And, you know, Gary Erickson walked away from basically an opportunity to sell the company for $120 million, which would have been $60 million to him personally, uh, thinking that he was probably giving up the chance of a lifetime to probably never make that much money again. But in fact, the company has has grown and grown and grown. It's probably 10 times the size it was when he made that decision. And he's probably, the stock in the company is worth a, a, a huge amount more. Mm-hmm. I had I had Cheryl Lachlan on the show. The, she was the CEO after Gary. When she was CEO, they had one product line in the Cliff Bar family that was worth seventy million dollars. So I mean, yeah, he's not. He made the right call. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. I write about that in. Uh, I did a tenth anniversary edition of Small Giants a couple of years ago. It came out, and one of the things it had a couple of new chapters and one of the chapters was just sort of an update on all of the companies. And uh, I, I write about how, you know, Gary has had to sort of evolve the company as it has grown. He's done a great job of it. I mean, it's still a great, if you go in, it's uh, located now in Emeryville up here in the Bay Area, and uh, it's, they've got a great headquarters, and mm-hmm. really great to spend time. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of respect for uh, both uh, Gary and his wife, Kit, and uh, the CEO now, Kevin uh, Cleary. Uh, it's really fantastic. You know, this has been a, a fascinating conversation and we could probably talk for a whole nother two or three hours, but because uh, you've got so much history. I mean, you've been in the trenches for so long and I feel like we barely are scratching the surface, but unfortunately we do have to wrap up and maybe we can do a round two sometime. But I, before we close, uh, I want to I make sure that number one, we can point people to where they can find out more about what you're doing online. And then after that, we'll, we'll close with the three questions that I ask of every guest. Okay. Uh, well, I, have, I do have a website. It's www.boburlingham.com. Okay. And I have all my books up there. I, I don't pay enough attention to it as I should, but uh, that, that's one place. Plus, you know, now the thing is, is that the Great Game of Business gave rise to an organization called the Great Game of Business. And they it's all about open book management. And uh, a lot of people go there. And Small Giants gave rise to the Small Giants community. You can go see that at smallgiants.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a summit coming up, don't you? You do have a summit coming up. That's very good, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> when is it? It's in June, right? Oh, it's in May. Oh, it's in May. Okay. It's in the May. It's in the middle of May. And uh, uh, I will say that they're very good. They're very good conferences. I mean, you know, there are a lot of really, really good conferences. I'm very much involved with the Tugboat Group, which is actually Dave Warden is somebody who'd be, who's the head of the Tugboat Group, is somebody who would, and the founder, somebody you'd be interested to talk to. Mm-hmm. It was. 
a venture capitalist. Hmm. He's a you know, dyed-in-the-wool venture capitalist. He's been a client of Perkins, been a, a Bain, and a sterling record. And he decided to leave that all behind because he wanted to focus on companies that were really trying to be evergreen, namely to last. He's created a great organization. Hmm. Um, that, What's his name again? Uh, his name is Dave Horton, W-H-O-R-T-O-N. And it, it, it's the, the organization is called the Tugboat Group, which you can find out about online. Okay. So the, the last three questions that I ask of every guest, the first is kind of a fun one. And it's, if you could pick any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower. So any skill, any skill you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Well, I don't know. I, I guess I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of humility and humbleness. Hmm. Uh, and I think that the more humility and humbleness that we have in the world, the better off we all be. I, I don't know. I don't know if you could create a superpower out of out of being humble and having humility. Although I guess that the country that's in the Black Panther had some of those qualities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I would say that those are the things that I really look for in people too. I love that. I love that. The next question is: What are three lies? that we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing our full potential? Well, you ask tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> we tell ourselves that we can't do it. And uh, or, you know, that they, we listen to people who are basically uh, often with the best of intentions uh, tell us things that, in fact, uh, wind up stopping us from trying to do uh, things as great. Um, as they're capable of, and uh, I, I would say that, that that's one of the lies that we tell ourselves. Other ones, I would say that as we get older, we often get more jaundiced uh, about the world, and that is deadly. Um, what do you mean by that? I mean that we start to believe the worst about the world around us instead of looking for the best. Hmm. You know, if you focus on that, it screws up your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we have, frankly, too many people right now in this country uh, focusing on because, you know, it's still a great country, still have great people. Uh, you know, fundamentally, we haven't, for all the uh, political stuff that goes on in Washington, and generally, uh, you can't ignore that in particular. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in Missouri, uh, with people in the coast called flyover country, and I developed it tremendous amount of affection uh, for that, that part of the country. Um, you know, people don't, 
I think that people on the coast, which, you know, I've always lived on the coast myself, um, don't appreciate that part of the country as much as they should. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I just got back from a really great trip with my family. We went, we spent a bunch of time in Washington, D.C., but we also drove to Pittsburgh and then through West Virginia and into, you know, the Ohio, into Ohio, Steubenville in particular. And those are all, those are steel mill towns, you know, yeah. that, that don't exist anymore. Yeah. And the, just the devastation that has had happened all along the, that river. And that used to be the backbone of our country. And we've, they're, they're forgotten communities. Yeah. It's true. Know, for sure. But, you know, it's also true that there are communities that are capable of, uh, of doing a lot. And yes. They have to choose to reinvent themselves. Right. And, and they're obviously resilient people and, and strong people, but they, they have to make a decision to reinvent themselves. And Pittsburgh, as an overall city, has done that. You know, it's got, you know, it's a big city, but these smaller communities are lagging way behind and they're stuck in the past and they, they need to choose a different outlook. Yeah. The last question is, how will you measure your life? It comes from a book uh, by Clay Christensen, a great book if you haven't read it. I basically, you know, in the end, I have to say that I, I come, I, I let other people measure my life. Uh, I look at my children and my grandchildren and I basically decide how I've done uh, based on them and if they're healthy and happy then my wife and I have done a good job mm. <laughs> that's that's how I look at it as far as what I've done uh, professionally I leave that up to other people to decide. Mm. I love it Bo, thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show and sharing your story and your journey and your insights with us. I look forward to continuing to collaborate in the future. Thank you very much, Mike. You ask great questions, hard questions, questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact. Oh, 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 o